from the High Center Studios of Messiah College on the periphery of American evangelicalism here in Grantham, Pennsylvania. This is the Wave Improvement Leads Home podcast, a bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. And now, here's your host, author and award-winning historian, John Fia. Thank you, Drew, and welcome everyone to episode 30 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. We are recording this episode in December 2017, so Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays to all of our listeners. Drew, Merry Christmas to you and your family as well. Yes, Happy Holidays to everyone and Merry Christmas to your family, John. Tell me, is your family going to be together over the holidays? We will. My daughter's coming back from college uh, in a couple days, uh, and I think we're just going to be home here in central Pennsylvania for the holidays. How about you? We're going to be going up to Connecticut where my in-laws live, and we're going to have a, a nice, quiet Christmas up there. Now, it won't be the whole family, but we'll be up there with, with my wife's parents. That's good. You know, I was thinking that these holiday wishes might actually be something of a segue into today's episode. Uh, I wonder if you saw that our president uh, has declared that we can now feel free to say Merry Christmas again. What's your take, Drew, on this whole war over Christmas stuff? You, you know, I saw some great sarcastic tweets uh, in response to some of this, uh, you know, riffing on some variation of how we have to recall celebrating Christmas in a bunker during the Obama years. And now (laughs) we can finally light our trees and sing silent night in the open now. But I mean, in all seriousness, this notion is actually just quite incredibly foreign to me. Um, As a child, if I, if I may tell a quick story here, as a child, I had three very dear friends, and one was Jewish, and he would always invite me over for latkes and menorah lighting and and, and celebrating Hanukkah. Uh, Another was an Iraqi refugee from Mm. the first Gulf War, and while I learned mostly about the practice of Ramadan from him, which of course is not during this holiday season, he's also often in my thoughts during these debates. But my only close friend at the time who was a Christian was also a refugee, uh, this time from South Sudan. And considering what he and his family fled because of their faith and ethnicity, I frankly find it insulting to them to, inter- to interpret the encouragement of pluralism here in the United States as a form of prosecution, right? You know, I mean, here, here's a person who actually had to flee right. a country because he was a Christian. And, uh, you know. Yeah, yeah. That's in, what, what also strikes me about that story is, was this in Carlisle? No, no. So oh, okay. remember, my mom did her doctoral work at Indiana University. God, so yes, these so were all little... children of, of IU graduate students. I was going to say, that's a pretty diverse group of friends <laughs> yeah. growing up in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. But that's true. Frankly, I think this whole war on Christmas thing is a little bit silly. And you know, like you, I think it's just a waste of time. I thought it was really funny when a Trump advisor uh, who was on CNN a lot during the campaign, Kaylee McEnany, tweeted, we have fine we finally have a leader unafraid to boldly proclaim those two simple, beautiful words, Merry Christmas. And then, of course, Twitter right, had a field day with this. People sent dozens of tweets, retweeted things in which Obama you know, had said Merry Christmas over and over again. Um, I really don't know what the fight is about. I'm a Christian. I have, an athe- I have atheist friends. I have non-Christian friends who say Merry Christmas to me all the time. I wish them Happy Holidays or Happy Hanukkah. I also don't understand what the culture warriors are complaining about, really, when you think about it. Uh, Last time I checked, many of us get off work for Christmas. Uh, There's no postal service. Um, The malls and the streets are filled with Christmas decorations. You know, where is this so-called war on Christmas? I I, I would point out that maybe the only people who really are fighting the closing of institutions... Uh, during Christmas time are those who are committed to kind of an unfettered capitalism. So, yeah, that's you know. true. That's true. Yeah, that, we can't forget that. I, I wrote a piece a couple of years ago in which I argued um, most American Christians probably are more familiar with when Black Friday is than the first day of Advent. Right. right. One evangelical pastor I heard said Trump's recent declarations on Christmas make him quote unquote the most faith-friendly president in American history. This was actually Robert Jeffress from the First Baptist Church in Dallas, uh, I would respond in two ways. First, go look up what Trump says about Christmas, right? It's pretty much void of any kind of theological content. Based on this, I would think Trump would actually be the last person any evangelical would want as a spokesman for this kind of sacred moment in the Christian calendar. And then second, can't these evangelical leaders see that they're being played? I mean, this is, Trump doesn't care about Christmas. I mean, this is a political ploy to keep evangelicals uh, on board with his uh, with his platform, so it's you know it's 
it's just kind of discouraging those of us who kind of, as a Christian who I do, I do want to take Christmas seriously as an important event in the sort of story of faith, my faith. Um, you know, this is, this is kind of uh, really discouraging. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, there's, there's a current of white nationalism at play here too, because there was nothing, and, and you've spoken about this before, there's nothing a man with a middle name Hussein could do to prove that he was a Christian, yet the bar is so low for our current president. He visits the right evangelical institutions. He makes a, a maybe a minor illusion, misquotes the Bible, and then proclaims Merry Christmas. And that, you know, that comes as proof that God is back in the White House. And of course, there's that thorny issue of his Jewish daughter continuing to say happy holidays. That's right. That's right. Just, just uh, kind of to throw this in here, um, some of you who listen know that this spring I will be uh, sort of bringing together all of my thoughts on Christians, evangelicals, and Trump from a historical perspective, but I'll, I'll be lying if I say the book doesn't also have a critical edge to it. Um, when my book, Believe Me, The Evangelical Road to Donald Trump uh, will be out spring 2018 with Erdman, so be looking for that. Well, Drew, okay, now we solved this problem, I think, right? Um, let's play the Christmas angle in a different way here. Christmas is the season of giving. And here at the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast, we can use your support. Drew, tell our listeners how they can support our work here at the podcast. Well, as always, we are supported by Lisa DeGuardi, Ron Schooler, Kate Logan, and Gretchen Adams. We are also sponsored by Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right, right college fit for your future. If you are interested in becoming one of our regular supporters, it's easy. Just head over to thewayofimprovement.com and click support. There you will find information on our Patreon campaign. And we are still in the gift-giving mood. Depending on your level of sponsorship, there are a number of goodies that will come your way. Mugs are great for hot be beverages of various right. kinds. Books are a great way to pass the time on your holiday vacation. But I also want to encourage everyone to help us out in another way. We don't advertise. The only way we get our episodes to new listeners is through word of mouth, or tweet, as it were, from people like you. So even if you are tapped out with giving financially this season, which, you know, if you have a lot of nieces and nephews like me, I know it's easy to get tapped out this, mm -hmm. this time of year. You can still help the cause by telling a friend or posting on social media about why you like this podcast using the hashtag TWOILH podcast. Absolutely, Drew. We, again, we could really use your support. Uh, we are working hard here to try to bring you the best guests, especially like our guests today. You know, we're trying to bring you um, people who are writing important books, people who are engaged in the history field, people who are shaping the public discourse. Give us, you know, give us a listen, you know, see if you like what you hear and then maybe consider supporting us. We appreciate all of you who have invested in what we're doing here in this podcast. And we hope that, you know, you'll give us your feedback as well as to what we can do to improve. So, John, what do we have in store for this episode? Well, Drew, it's not only the Christmas season, but today the people of Alabama will go to the polls and they elect a senator. They'll elect a senator in a special election. Uh, by the time you listen to this podcast, you'll know the results of that election. One of the candidates, Roy Moore, is hoping to ride a wave of evangelical support to victory, even though he has been accused of multiple times of inappropriate sexual behavior, sometimes even with minors. Evangelical Christians are in the spotlight again, much in the same way that they were in November 2016 when 81% of them voted for Donald Trump. Today, many of them will cast their vote for Roy Moore. Evangelicals make up about 50% of the adult population in Alabama. So if Moore wins, they will have to own him. They will have to own their vote. Yes, John. I mean, Roy Moore is, as far as I can tell, the dictionary definition of culture warrior. Yeah. And whether it is a fair characterization or not, evangelicals are often seen as the most reliable foot soldiers in that culture war. That is why we have Francis Fitzgerald here with us today to help us think about the place of evangelicals and politics in recent American history. That's right, Drew. Francis Fitzgerald has won the Pulitzer Prize, the Bancroft Prize, the National Book Award. Her latest book, The Evangelicals, The Struggle to Shape America, was a finalist for a 2017 National Book Award in nonfiction. Drew, this is probably the most thorough analysis of the rise of the Christian right that I have ever uh, seen. 
The book traces the history of American evangelicalism all the way back to the 18th century, but is particularly strong on the, on the period between 1960 and the present. And there's even an epilogue that deals with the whole Trump phenomenon. I should say, I warn you, uh, this is a, a great book, but it's also not for the faint of heart, 700 pages long, but it is a well-written, beautifully written in some places, narrative of the relationship between evangelicals and politics in um, American life. Yeah, I tell you what, I mean, let's be honest here. This is a great get for us. I mean, to yeah. to have a, a guest of this magnitude on the podcast is really, we're, we're just really lucky. So, of course, I'm looking forward to this interview. But before we get to Francis Fitzgerald, you have some of your own thoughts on American evangelicalism. As America faced long gas lines and a hostage crisis in Iran, conservative evangelicals began mobilizing to take back their country. The moral majority and the various manifestations of the Christian right that would follow it went to work on a political playbook designed to win America for Christ. As we will see below, this playbook is still in operation today. It teaches and has taught Christians that the best way to reclaim America is to elect a president and members of Congress who will pass laws privileging what its authors call a Christian worldview. These elected officials will in turn appoint and confirm conservative Supreme Court justices who will defend Christian conservative values. While the control of the presidency and the Congress is certainly important to the successful implementation of this playbook, the control of the Supreme Court is essential. The fracturing of the nation's Christian consensus, the Christian right argues, took place at the hands of liberal justices who promoted high and impregnable walls between church and state, removed prayer and Bible reading from public schools, legalized abortion, and allowed the IRS to intrude on the religious liberty of Christian schools. There have been some subtle changes to the playbook over the years, but the pursuit of politics has remained the dominant approach to government upheld by conservative evangelicals today. When the playbook of the Christian right first captured the political imagination of white conservative evangelicals and fundamentalists during the Reagan era, it taught evangelicals to vote not only for candidates with socially conservative policies, but for those candidates who exemplified the highest levels of Christian character. The idea was simple. The right political positions on abortion, marriage, religious liberty, prayer, and Bible reading in schools would naturally flow from the heart and soul of a moral, preferably Christian, leader. This commitment to the moral integrity of the office of president took center stage when the Christian right had to deal for the first time with a non-Republican chief executive. Bill Clinton had the wrong policy positions on social issues, but he also lacked personal character. And the evangelicals on the Christian right would not let the voting public forget it. When news of Clinton's White House sexual affair with intern Monica Lewinsky became public, leaders of the Christian right made the case he was morally unfit to hold office. Falwell told USA Today that political leaders were required to, quote, flee from all appearances of evil, unquote, and added that such standards were, quote, immensely higher for those who invoke the name of Christ, as Bill Clinton does, unquote. In an opinion piece at the conservative magazine Human Events, Gary Bauer, the president of the Family Research Council, wrote that Clinton's lies about the Lewinsky affair were corrupting the morals of American young people. Quote, these children cannot be set adrift into a culture that tells them that lying is okay, that fidelity is old-fashioned, and that character doesn't count, unquote. Perhaps the strongest critic of Clinton's moral indiscretions was focused on the family founder and popular Christian right radio host, James Dobson. In a September 1998 letter to his supporters, Dobson made it clear that Clinton was not only unqualified for the presidency, but his affair with Lewinsky was a sign that the moral foundation of the nation was eroding. Dobson wrote, how did our beloved nation find itself in this sorry mess? I believe it began not with the Lewinsky affair, but many years earlier, he said. There was plenty of evidence during the first presidential election that Bill Clinton had a moral problem. 
His affair with Jennifer Flowers, which he now admits to having lied about, was rationalized by the American people. He lied about dodging the draft and then concocted an incredulous explanation that changed his story. Clinton evaded questions about whether he had used marijuana and then finally offered his now infamous I didn't inhale response. There were other indications that Bill Clinton was untruthful and immoral. Why then did the American people ignore so many red flags? Because, and I want to give the greatest emphasis to this point, the mainstream media became enamored with Bill Clinton in 1992 and sought to convince the American people that character doesn't matter. Quote, unquote. Here's some more from Dobson. As it turns out, character does matter. You can't run a family, let alone a country, without it. How foolish to believe that a person who lacks honest and moral integrity is qualified to lead a nation and the world, unquote. For nearly four decades, conservative evangelicals have operated with the same political playbook. On one level, this playbook has failed to accomplish its goals. Abortion is still legal in the United States. Bible reading and prayer have not returned to public schools. The country is more religiously diverse than at any other point in its history. Gay marriage is now the law of the land. While there have been small victories here and there, the Christian right is not anywhere closer to winning back the culture than it was 30 years ago. But on the other hand, when it comes to indoctrinating American evangelicals in the most effective way of restoring a Christian nation and winning the culture wars, the Christian rights playbook has been extremely successful. In other words, despite its failure to deliver on its promises to reclaim the nation for Christ, the Christian right has shaped the political sensibilities of millions and millions of conservative evangelicals. In the 2006 general election season, the Christian right and their followers pulled out the old playbook again. During the GOP primary season, Donald Trump familiarized himself with this playbook and convinced enough evangelicals that he was the best man to execute it. He would now need to persuade the rest of the conservative evangelicals, the evangelical majority who had split their votes during the primaries between people like Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio and Ben Carson, that he was worthy of their support. Between May and November 2016, Trump and his team worked hard at bringing more evangelicals in the fold, and the efforts appear to have paid off. He chose Indiana Governor Mike Pence, a politician with impeccable evangelical credentials, as his running mate. He established an evangelical advisory board that included Dobson, Jerry Falwell Jr., Televangelist Paula White, South Carolina megachurch pastor Mark Burns, Southern Baptist leader Richard Land, former GOP Congresswoman Michelle Bachman, Dallas megachurch pastor Robert Jeffries, and longtime Christian right activist Ralph Reed. But Trump's most important move to win over conservative evangelicals who were still skeptical about his candidacy took place on May 18, 2016. On that day, the soon-to-be GOP nominee released the names of 11 judges whom he would consider nominating to the Supreme Court. It was a move that came straight out of the Christian right playbook. The list was put together with input from the Heritage Foundation, a conservative think tank known for defending traditional marriage, opposing abortion, and fighting for the right of religious institutions to follow their conscience on these matters and others without government interference. On July 13, 2016, the Pew Research Center released a study showing that evangelicals were rallying to Trump. Even as Trump said all the right things to appeal to evangelical voters, these value voters still had to come to grips with those inconvenient pages of the Christian right playbook devoted to presidential character. This section of the playbook made the evangelical supporters of Trump more and more uncomfortable as each day of the campaign passed by. Politics is a corrupt business, and every candidate has his or her skeletons in the closet. But Trump was arguably the most immoral candidate in recent memory. His entire career and his success as a television star and public figure was built upon vices incompatible with the moral teachings of Christianity. 
He has proven to be a liar, a misogynist, a racist, an inciter of violence, an Islamophobe, a narcissist, a bully, a cheater, and a slave to his passions. He fails to show discretion, prudence, self-control, or moral restraint. He lacks humility. He is vindictive and vulgar. And we could go on. At first, conservative evangelicals did not know how to respond to Trump's indiscretions. How could they support his policy proposal and ignore his serious character flaws? To do so would be a major departure from the playbook. The only way to get around Trump's flaws was to somehow Christianize him. Paula White claimed she had led Trump to accept Jesus Christ as his savior. Jerry Falwell Jr. said that Trump's moral life had changed since he became a born-again Christian. Dobson told his followers to be patient with Trump. He was, after all, a baby Christian. These attempts to make Trump palatable to white evangelical voters were the theopolitical equivalent of money laundering. Suddenly, Trump was whiter than snow, a sinner saved by grace. The greatest challenge to the Christian right's political playbook, however, took place on October 7, 2016, when the Washington Post released the recording of Trump talking with Billy Bush, the host of the entertainment program Access Hollywood. During the lewd conversation, Trump said in no uncertain terms that he used his power as a wealthy celebrity to sexually assault women. Trump later apologized for the remark and claimed that he and Bush's conversation was little more than quote unquote locker room talk. But since the Access Hollywood tape was released, at least 20 women have made public statements confirming that Trump had sexually assaulted or harassed them. Some conservative evangelicals condemned Trump's words on the Access Hollywood tape, but the majority of pro-Trump evangelical leaders either remained silent or stood behind the GOP nominee. Falwell Jr., whose father had spoken so strongly about presidential character two decades earlier, claimed that the tape was leaked by anti-Trump members of the Republican Party. James Dobson, the great defender of the moral integrity of the office in 1998, found Trump's words to be deplorable, but kept his endorsement of Trump because the candidate promised to, quote, support religious liberty and the dignity of the unborn, and Mrs. Clinton promises she will not, unquote. The message to the nation and to the millions of young evangelicals watching and listening was clear. The character of leaders is not important when there is a Supreme Court nomination on the line. There is very little that Trump says or does to exemplify Christian character. But Trump's actions and behavior also fail to demonstrate the basic character traits that we have come to expect from any president in a republic, regardless of personal faith commitment. In 2010, Harvard political scientist Dennis Thompson argued that all American presidents should display a certain set of personal attributes that he calls constitutional character. This kind of character has less to do with public or private vices and more to do with the qualities officials should have to make the democratic process work well. These qualities include a sensitivity to basic rights of citizenship, a respect for due process, a sense of responsibility, tolerance of opposition, a willingness to justify decisions, and above all, the commitment to candor. Trump's rhetoric and actions have not imitated any of these traits of constitutional character. He has, on several occasions, threatened the religious liberty of Muslims, failed to condemn white supremacists, and shown no regard for freedom of speech or freedom of the press. During the campaign, Trump criticized Barack Obama for carrying out his political agenda by circumventing Congress through executive orders. When Trump got into office, he did the same thing. Moreover, he takes no responsibility for his blunders, misstatements, or attacks on American institutions such as Congress or the FBI. Rather than tolerate or empathize with his political opponents, Trump demeans and belittles them, usually through his Twitter account. The man who claimed during the campaign that he would unite the country now presides over a nation that is more divided than ever. Trump often attempts to justify his executive decisions, but if his historically low approval rating is any indication, less than half of the country is convinced by his arguments or think his policies are good for the nation. Finally, Trump has no candor. The practice Thompson describes as, quote, the preeminent virtue of the democratic process. Truth-telling is very difficult for this man. 
According to one respected internet source, 70% of Trump's public statements are lies. The members of the Christian right claim to love the ideas of the founding fathers, but their adoration fades when the founders' words fail to affirm their pro-Trump agendas. For example, evangelical supporters fail to mention the words of Publius, James Madison, in Federalist 57, when he says, quote, the aim of every political constitution is or ought to be first to obtain for rulers men who possess most wisdom to discern and most virtue to pursue the common good of the society, and in the next place, to take the most effectual precautions for keeping them virtuous whilst they continue to hold their public trust, unquote. And why aren't the Trump evangelicals citing Federalist 68, the founding document in which Alexander Hamilton wrote, quote, talents for low intrigue and the little arts of popularity may only suffice to elevate a man to the first honors in a single state, but it will require other talents and a different kind of merit to establish him in the esteem and confidence of the whole union or of so considerable a portion of it as would be necessary to make him a successful candidate for the distinguished office of the President of the United States. It will not be too strong to say that there will be a constant probability of seeing the station filled by characters preeminent for ability and virtue, unquote. If we take the founders seriously and celebrate them as demigods in the way that many on the Christian right tend to do, then we must also come to grips with the fact that they expected the person holding the highest office in the land to be a person of character. The Christian right was correct in 1998. Character does matter. It mattered with Bill Clinton, and it matters with Donald Trump. When Donald Trump was inaugurated president of the United States on January 20th, 2017, he had millions of American evangelicals to thank for his electoral college victory. It was also a victory for the political playbook devised four decades ago by the architects of the Christian right in response to the fears that their Christian nation was slipping away. They now own Donald Trump. Only time will tell what kind of damage this will do to their Christian witness. Frances Fitzgerald is an American journalist and historian. She is best known for her 1972 book, Fire in the Lake, The Vietnamese and the Americans in Vietnam which won the Pulitzer Prize, Bancroft Prize, and National Book Award. She is also the author of America Revised, 1979, a highly critical review of history textbooks published in the United States. Cities on a Hill, 1987, an analysis of United States urban history. Way Out There in the Blue, Reagan, Star Wars, and the End of the Cold War, 2000. And Vietnam, Spirits of the Earth, 2002. She has also written for The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Harper's, The New York Review of Books, The Nation, Rolling Stone, and Esquire. Her current book, The Evangelicals, The Struggle to Shape America, was a finalist for the 2017 National Book Award. We are really excited today here on the podcast to have Francis Fitzgerald, uh, Pulitzer Prize uh, winning author and historian and the author of The Evangelicals, The Struggle to Shape America. Francis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. Now, you have written, obviously, Pulitzer, a Pulitzer Prize-winning book on Vietnam. You've written books on history textbooks, urban history, the Reagan era. What led you to your interest? What led to your interest in uh, American evangelicalism? Well, I think um, it was probably an accident. Um, <laughs> I was I was uh, teaching in Lynchburg, Virginia, in 1980, and um, a professor at this uh, uh, liberal arts college said, you must go and look at the fundamentalist church next door. And um, I'd never um, seen a fundamentalist, to my knowledge. I'm a New Yorker. <laughs> um, and so, of course, I went, and it was Jerry Falwell's church. Okay. And, and Falwell, at that point, was um, starting the moral majority. Right. Um, and uh, uh, his old political endeavors. And so... Um, um, I wrote a piece for the New York, the New Yorker magazine about um, not not just him, but his his community and uh, what it was to to, to be a fundamentalist and um, how people got there and um, um, 
um, you know, a more sociological um, description, sure. and as as well as um, um, you know, uh, talking about his entry into politics. I've been I've been interested ever yeah. since. Um, but um, and of course the um, evangelicals are not not all fundamentalists by any means. Um, but uh, this was kind of an extreme example of, in a way, the the American other to to um, us New York New York right. Uh, liberals. <laughs> right, right, um, yeah, and that that explains a lot because at various points in the book, you kind of move into first person and you say, "I first visited Falwell's church," you know, and and then you're like, "Oh, yeah, so you you've been interested in this for a long time." Um, yeah. And then what prompted you to kind of finally put? all of your reporting and journalistic efforts on, on the Christian right into uh, this book? Well, I, I, um, I di- haven't, didn't write about evangelicals consistently, you know, right. uh, since the eighties, I've done two, two books in between, but, um, um, I, I, um, I did quite a lot of reporting, um, uh, during their height in the, um, uh, Bush two administration. Okay. And I thought, um, that first of all, you can't really understand um, evangelicals and particularly the Christian right without understanding their history. Sure. And and I also thought, well, it's time to put this all together, um, and uh, um, uh, to answer the questions that I wanted, um, that I had myself. Sure, sure. Let's talk a little bit about you know one of the things that one of the things that comes up over and over again, and and you don't make a direct. Uh, reference to this, but it seems like this this question of fear uh, seems to always arise. It at least arose in my head as I read this. On page one sixty one in the book, you write in the context here of the mid twentieth century fundamentalist movement. You write the fundamentalist warlords kept discovering new enemies, and whether they picked up on such commonly held prejudices as anti Catholicism or anti Semitism or attacked the New Deal. The new enemy was always the worst threat to Christianity ever known. For fundamentalists, the world was always in a state of crisis, with Satan ever appearing in new guises. Uh, what role do you think, and again, I know you don't really develop this in the book, but what role do you think fear plays in uh, evangelicals' approach to the world, approach to politics, in their kind of, uh, uh, you know, their cultural and political agenda? Well, I think it is important, but first of all, um, I was describing fundamentalists at that point right, again, right? Not not all evangelicals. Sure, sure. Okay. And for the does for it carry over? Call, yeah. Does it continue? Yeah. I mean, does it carry over into the into the evangelical movements of the eighties? You know, is it the same kind of fear? Has something it, changed? Well, it, it something has changed. I mean, I think that for what, the, those I describe as the warlords, that is the the, the um, sort of very aggressive. Uh, um, fundamentalists of the of of the uh, um, right. um, uh, uh, pre and, and post war periods, they were they were really um, um, building a bar- barrier between themselves and the rest of the world, sure. um, and they were um, showing themselves to be the great rams that would protect the 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 uh, sheep, their flock, and um, uh, so. Finding outside enemies is always yeah. um, makes for cohesion. These would be and, people. These would be people like William Bell Riley or Jay Gresham Machen or these kinds of people, right? You're talking about these warlords. That's right. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Exactly. And and to to some extent, the Christian right of the uh, you know of Jerry Falwell's era, the 1980s, 90s, and so on, um, uh, did the same. They were they were always um, discovering new enemies. But I think that they. That they really had them, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. These people were reacting against um, what they considered all of the the, um, the uh, horrors of the 1960s, you know, from sure. from um, the anti-war protests, the femini- to feminism, to uh, homosexuality, and so on. And um, and they tended to speak in in um, 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 sort of violent violent rhetoric. Um, but uh, and that that was the kind of their style, and um, um, these days um, now that the Christian right is no longer what it was, um, I think that, that evangelicals per se are are, are worried about um, um, you know whether they're going to continue. Uh, they were they worry about becoming a minority, right? Um, 
uh, both a Christian minority and a white minority. Sure. Um, and uh, therefore, this this concern over immigration, which is very great in in the pews. Right. Um, and uh, they they um, um, uh, they also worry that the Christian right. I mean, some of them do that. The Christian right has turned everybody against them, and um, so that. Um, people are becoming less religious and less evangelical than they were before. Sure. Sure. One of the things, one of the things that I am also fascinated about is um, the relationship between the Christian right and, and the free market, a capitalism, right? Uh, They're always, you know, I've never understood how they put those two things together. Right? It's, I can understand why they, uh, I can understand why as Christians they defend certain social values. Um, but at what point does does capitalism kind of get into the mix? When I read your chapter on Falwell, it was hard to distinguish between his his sort of passion for kind of free markets, his anti big government, right, and then at the same time his sort of more traditional kind of social concerns. Can you elaborate on on the relationship between kind of free market capitalism and uh, the moral concerns of the Christian right? Yeah. Um... First of all, uh, evangelicalism is, is very individualistic, yeah. and um, there's, I think, very little understanding among many uh, about the role of institutions. Um, uh, when the fundamentalists sort of hived off from um, the rest of uh, Protestant, American Protestants, um, the, the, um, um, the left wing of the, of the Protestant world yeah. um, took up the social gospel, which right. meant that you had to, um, in a, to be a great society, a good society. You had to um, uh, Christianize the, the institutions as well as people one by one. And um, I think that the fundamentalists at that point um, objected to that and um, uh, thought to differentiate themselves and continued to believe in in um, individual conversion. And so, um, it, so it goes with uh, with um, um, economic institutions. Yeah. Um, freedom is the is the is the is the word um, that um, they like to use, and um, um, freedom means um, uh, freedom from government re- regulations. And for some for reasons that um, really have to do with this history, they don't think of. Um, Large corporations as as um, uh, being institutions as being as being the powers as being potentially the enemies. I mean, yeah. let, let us say, in the case of um, you know oil spills or or or, or um, um, institutions that would would um, actually um, make their life more difficult. Yeah. So big corporations. Uh, they don't see as institutions, so thus those corporations do not have to be Christianized, or they don't have to, you know, the the moral teachings of the gospel or however they would explain it do not apply then to these to these institutions, these corporate institutions. Is that what you're saying? That's right. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Yes. Yeah, that's fascinating. So it's a sort of limited application of uh, of um, you know their their Christian beliefs. Um, let's. Talk- no, I, th- I yeah. think the other other part of it is that. A lot of them were Southerners, and, and the leadership of the um, Christian right was always Southern. And so, um, you know, they're not as used to, to uh, um, corporations as sure. the uh, Northerners. You know, um, it's always been a, um, a more agricultural place, and uh, um, um, corporations have come generally come in from the outside, yeah. at least that was so in the beginning. Yeah. So um, uh, it was part of the... Um, it's part of their their ethos is that they are they are individuals against the against the large um, um, institutions and which they really um, uh, equate with government. Yeah, well, that's fascinating. That's a sort of right a long standing uh, tradition within Southern going back to you know Reconstruction, right when Northern capitalists were kind of coming down and turning the agrarian South into a. Uh, into a more northern industrial world. That's let's let's stick with Southerners for a second here. Um, 
one of the things I, I really like about your book, and I've read a little bit about fundamentalism, but uh, rarely does does the Southern story play into the history of fundamentalism and 20th century evangelicalism. So, you know, for example, if you read some of the best books on uh, on the fundamentalist movement, books that you use extensively in your in your own book, people like George Marsden or others, you yeah. don't you don't really see like it's almost like they don't know what to do with the South. Um, but but you've you've you know, I think one of the major contributions of your work is that you integrate the Southern story into the history of this, um, which, you know, I, I, I don't understand why other historians haven't thought about this before. Um, talk a little well, bit about, yeah, yeah, talk about the Southern I mean, I Baptists. Think, I, yeah. I think it partly has to do with sort of specialization of the academic world. Maybe, you know? yeah. And um, so there are, are lots of wonderful books about, about uh, uh, the South and Southern evangelicalism, but, uh, but, um, they um, they they're completely you know separate from the from the ones about northern evangelicalism yeah. or fundamentalism, and um, and nobody nobody's ever put them together. It's very extraordinary. Yeah. So so what is it? What is it? You mentioned you know the corporate um, you know the the anti corporate mentality and in, in your answer to the last question. But what what is it about? You know what what contribution do Southerners, especially Southern Baptists, kind of make to the whole political agenda of the Christian right? I know that's well, a big question, uh, but yeah, Southern Baptists um, were essentially isolated um, um, around 1940 when mm. um, you know because of slavery, right? And um, they remained isolated for years after the Civil War, many years, um, because um, um, they were resisting the, the North um, and uh, uh, segregation and uh, and uh, um, uh, their whole way of life they saw as, as threatened by the North. So um, um, they um, um, had a very, um, uh, just purely... Uh, um, uh, doctrinally, they their their um, their religion was very um, uh, conservative, but it was a sort of traditionalist conservative. Um, that is to say that uh, um, it it was um, uh, rather simple. Um, it was um, made for uh, rural people, and um, uh, in the villages and towns, often you know the the, the pastors really reigned supreme. Um, uh, in terms of morals and uh, uh, culture, right. um, and um, so I, I think that um, it, w- it was this traditionalism that um, um, uh, allowed them to, to um, turn to the right rather quickly um, around 1980, um, when um, and along with the with the non non evangelical Southerners sure. um, and uh, and and become Republicans. Um, just in resistance to uh, the civil rights movement and to all the uh, um, uh, novelties of, of the '60s in the North. Sure, sure. When when evangelicals uh, do kind of begin to get politically active, uh, this initial wave. One of the what, what I took from your book is that this initial wave of the Christian right, the maj- moral majority, the Falwell era. This would have been right about the time when you started getting interested in these people. You were ten, you know, you went to Thomas Road Baptist Church. And you mentioned earlier. Um, you really stress that these that this early wave, this first ten years, maybe this first decade, was not very successful, um, and they really had to close up shop uh, by by uh, the end of the eighties. Once the Reagan era was over, what what why weren't they so successful? And then what was well, yeah? Go ahead. Uh, it was partly just Falwell himself, yeah, who um, uh, um, um, uh, was a fundamentalist and really um, recruited only fundamentalists from his own Bible school yeah. as um, activists, and they were pastors all around the uh, around the South. And um, the past as pastors, they didn't really have the the time or the energy to mount uh, full political organization, so. Um, while they were able to assemble some votes, they didn't have um, a real organization. It, it not one that lasted, because the pastors would drop out and people would lose interest in politics as soon as the election was over. Um, 
And it really wasn't until um, Pat Robertson right. and came along with with Ralph Reed, yeah. who was uh, who was uh, Ralph Reed being being um, um, uh, a layman, um, where they uh, um, uh, and Reed in particular um, uh, developed a rather sophisticated organizational structure, in which um, you know um, he. Uh, taught people how to become activists, how to run for office, and um, started chapters in, in, in states. And, and, um, and by, by the end of his te- tenure in sort of 1986 or so, um, uh, I, I think there were 18 states that were, were um, dominated by Christian right um, uh, groups and um, individuals who simply joined the... the uh, Republican Party and um, became a part of it, and um, and and that that was what what um, um, really really gave the movement strength. So it was really uh, really the Christian right. This the the real the real story here is less about Falwell. Well, Falwell being the founder, but it's really Robertson and, and really Ralph Reed who who are sort of behind what we know today, or as as the Christian right. They were the most they were the most effective. Is that fair to say? That is, and and also James Dobson, who right. who um, sort of succeeded um, after the Clinton administration. Um, he also um, had a had a large group. He was head of Focus on the Family, right. which was which was a non political uh, um, ministry. But he also created, um, you know, half a dozen um, political groups, lobbying groups. Um, 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 outreach groups in states that uh, that um, would make their own way, and he he, he was the sort of a, um, the uh, uh, the leader of th- these groups. But um, um, they were again developed locally and grassroots way. Yeah, and and they were again rather strong organizations. Right, and that's what that's what distinguished, I think, the Christian coalition. Right, it was the more grassroots approach. It was much more of the state approach rather than Falwell's kind of big national approach. If I read you correctly, well, um, I, Falwell um, um, simply didn't wasn't very good at organization, yeah. and yeah. Um, um, and he, you know, at that that point, um, evangelicals were somewhat um, leery of uh, fundamentalists. And so he never really succeeded in in um, creating a, a, a large party of the evangelicals, and it was only yeah. um, when Ralph Reed came along that 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 happened. Okay, and um, even some Catholics, yeah. and the same was true of Dobson, um, an equally um, um, astute um, politician and um, also organization creator. Sure, sure, Drew, you had a question. Yeah, your last chapter is titled The Transformation of the Christian Right. Um and you you address some of these uh transformations during the during the Bush and Obama era. So how was the Christian Right transformed during that time? Um well, first of all, um many of the old leaders died out towards the end of um of the Bush administration. Um and and later on Falwell died in 2007. Um but and and some some retired, g- giving way to a new generation of pastors that had not lived through the um, the the turmoil of the 1960s, and um, who were less uh, you know um, vehement and less less um, 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 furious at everybody, <laughs> you know, secular humanists and so forth, um, and um, then also. For the first time, um, they had a, they had um, an actual opposition inside the evangelical world, and um, this uh, a progressive wing, wing developed in the last years of the Bush administration, um, and known as the New Evangelicals because they didn't really have an organization, but they were you know just a group of pastors and right. theologians and. Um, um, international aid agency p- people who um, um, were far more interested in social justice issues um, uh, than anything else, and um, I mean, of course they they too were anti-abortion and um, 
um, sort of anti-homosexual, but but um, their emphasis was was on um, um, social action, social work to help you know the country as a whole, and um, uh, uh, they had nobody knows what their numbers were. I think they're mostly, you know, the leaders were mostly sort of intellectually minded, and um, so they had had great influence particularly over the younger generations um, who um, got fairly sick of the Christian right because, mm. you know, the millennials really hadn't anything, um, you know, they had never experienced any of this um, um, uh, shock of, of culture shock of, of the 1960s. And so um, uh, they also felt that, that um, the Christian right was driving people away. So, um, they they um, uh, turned out, you know, rather differently, especially in the, in the you know col- among the college educated. Sure, sure. Well, that then leads. We only have a few more minutes left here, but that actually leads then to uh, the present. Um, you know, as we're talking about the sort of future of the Christian right, or even the future of evangelicalism, we'd be remiss, Francis, if we did not get your take on evangelicals and Donald Trump. We are we are uh, taping this, recording this episode, actually, uh, on the day of the special election in Alabama with Roy Moore, where evangelicals seem to be rallying behind this kind of rather immoral candidate, I think it's fair to say. Um, and I think this is just a microcosm, right, of what we saw in November 2016. So how do you explain uh, the 81% of evangelicals who supported Trump? Well, I tell you, it was a puzzle at the time, even to um, to the leaders of the Christian right, yeah. who, got, who got together, I mean, such as they were at the time. But 50 of them got together, and they decided that they would support Ted Cruz, yeah. which made sense because he was an evangelical yeah. and a Texas conservative. Um, and uh, then, then um, as the, this is during the primaries, and as the primaries went, went along, it appeared that um, uh, a lot of evangelicals in the pews, or perhaps just people who call themselves evangelicals and didn't go to church all that much, um, uh, uh, were for Trump. Yeah, and um, uh, uh, they ha- the um, leadership had to sort of give in to them after a while. Yeah, and now they pretend they 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 were not surprised at all, but but really they were. Um, and um, so why did so why did this happen? Well, um, it I think it ha- has a lot to do with the um, close association with the Republican Party uh, and um, uh, with with. Uh, with politics per se, mm-hmm. a lot, a lot of them, by the way, joined the Tea Party, which yeah. is a sort of pre- predecessor to, to Trump, and and that um, their their um, their um, interest in people's um, character uh, diminished, um, uh, and they became more pr- pragmatic about yeah. Yeah. Um, supporting people who would support their own goals, and. Um, um, there, in fact, there, there are polls to show that this is the case. I mean, sure. it, it was a very, you know, went from like thirty percent to seventy percent. Right. Who didn't you know care? Um, so, uh, and then Trump had, I think, a particular um, uh, attraction for a lot of the, well, let's say a lot of evangelicals, particularly in the South, belong to the same group that you that. Um, has been identified as as the biggest Trump supporters. I mean, right, um, right. Not non non uh, college educated white um, males and also a women to great degree. Right, and um, so so they were voting um, what they thought of as their pocketbooks. Number sure. one, sure. They were also voting against immigration, who which they you know because they thought that that. Um, Immigration was taking their jobs away, right. um, and they were voting sort of against against uh, u- politics as usual, against the establishment, um, I, um, and um, um, feeling sort of generally balchy about <laughs> about right, the right. way the country yeah. had been run. Um, so, so um, um, 
they were voting in a way less less as evangelicals sure. than as as um, citizens. Right. <laughs> so if you were to sort of create a Venn diagram where you had economic issues and then uh, and then the social moral issues. Uh, there's a there's a spot there a sweet spot where they kind of come together right and and uh, that's the Trump that's the Trump constituency in some ways. That's right, yeah, yeah. because um, they they realized that Trump, whatever he had done in the past, would have to um, 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 uh, assuage their concerns because right. they were you know quite quite a quite a large chunk of the Republican Party. Yeah. So necessarily, Trump um, yeah. and Trump, in fact, has done done more than they ever thought he would. It's I true. think by yeah. you know with with um, all of these evangelical cabinet ministers and right. Right. so forth. So and uh, um, uh, in a way, he's done more for them than he has for anybody else. Yeah. I mean, he hasn't yeah. been able to pass a bill, but <laughs> but, he can, yeah. but um, with um, um, you know by executive fiat, he can he can. Um, um, uh, reduce the role of government in, sure. in let's say, um, uh, conservation, you know, and right. environmentalism. Yeah. Um, so, so I think um, generally they're quite happy with him. I think you're right about that. Do you think that this is a kind of uh, this whole this whole Christian right support for Trump? Do you think this is a, a sort of you know, you mentioned the millennials are coming along and they're not as interested. Do you think this is a sort of last-ditch kind of effort to sort of save the Christian right? Or do you think the Christian right goes away after Trump? Um, or is this just more of a continuation? I mean, what's the future, do you think, of, of uh, evangelicals, conservative evangelicals, white conservative evangelicals in politics? Well, the Christian right never goes away. I mean, yeah. right-wing evangelicals just don't go away. Right. I mean, they, you, you know, you... Um, you'll, you'll see it in this in, in this election of Roy Moore. Yeah, I'm not that I'm predicting he's going to win, but but he's going to he's going to do well in Alabama, oh, yeah. right? Oh yeah. Um, and uh, uh, you know, on the other hand, um, uh, the young are, are um, tend to be against that, particularly outside of the South. And the the young who go to church and take take um, uh, religious uh, doctrine seriously, sure, and take well not doctrine so much as 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 the idea of following Christ's example, right, right. And um, so there, there's 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 been a splintering of this um, evangelical world in political terms, um, um, and I think that probably it will um, uh, become more acute. Yeah, I think I, I tend to agree with that assessment. Yeah, um, we have been talking with Frances Fitzgerald. She is the author of The Evangelicals, The Struggle to Shape America, a finalist for the National Book Award. Uh, thank you so much for taking some time to talk with us today. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you. Do you have another book? Uh, do you have another book coming down the road? What are you working on now? Well, um, I, I'm still trying to cope with this one. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, lectures and so on. But um, um, and so I'm I'm uh, I'm waiting till the end of the year to, okay. to start thinking about something else. <laughs> good, good. Well, thanks again for joining us. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye bye. Again, another great interview with another, I mean, very esteemed author, journalist. I mean, Frances Fitzgerald doesn't get any better. I mean, she, I've been reading her, uh, you know, since I was like in high school. She won She won um, the, the, the Pulitzer, the Bancroft, and the National Book Award in 1972. She's been around. So uh, uh, I was so glad when I learned that she was taking on evangelicalism. And I mean, as I said, this book really is just the definitive history, I think, of the Christian right. The it just as I listened to her, it just it just really surprised me how uh, you know this person from New York City. I'm assuming she lives in Manhattan. I don't know. Is able to understand this world of kind of evangelicalism, especially in the South, right? And with in such you know in, in such sort of profound ways that she really gets into the, the, the sort of weeds and all of this stuff, 700 pages. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it was fast. You know, we all we both have kind of interesting experiences with evangelicalism, and and it's been a big part of of your scholarship, John. You know, I I came here at, as a student in Messiah College. Actually, I thought it was really interesting. You know, I asked her the question about the transformation of of the Christian right. Not you know, yeah. I remember witnessing that. I I've never been an evangelical, yeah. and, and I'm, yeah. I'm still not an evangelical, but I've I, I've always been religious and 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 chose to come to a school with with connections to evangelicalism. And I, I remember you know Jim Wallace kind of becoming the the his book right, uh, right. you know on 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 Christian politics after and, the 2004 election. Yeah, yeah, and 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 that was kind of the mood even among yeah. my friends here on campus who were evangelical. Yeah. And I I thought things had kind of yeah. flipped, you know, and and and. But it, it's it's really interesting yeah. because I, I think it gets to something you were saying in your in your commentary that you know a a, a, a president with character is going to the the right policy is going to flow out of that person because yeah. of their yeah. character and I think Obama became very difficult for evangelicals to wrap their head around because yeah. you know he's a faithful husband right, right. you know uh, by all accounts a great father a, you know and and yet had yeah. policies completely yeah. you know. Um, Antithetical to many of the commitments of the, yeah. of, of, the, of the Christian right, and and then now we see Trump in this flip and this move away from from pure character. You know, I think I think uh, everything just happened so fast. I mean, under the Obama administration, the social changes. I mean, when you think in two thousand eight, Obama ran on the idea that marriage was only between a man and a woman. For most of his first term, he defended the uh, Defense of Marriage Act. And then, you know, by the end, he himself has a personal conversion about marriage. And then we have Obergefell, right? I mean, that happens in eight years. You know, if you're a traditionalist on marriage, that is fast. And, you know, when social change happens quickly like this, people react strong, you know, strong to it. And I think in some ways you don't have Trump, you know, you don't have Trump without Obama, and then the race dimension, I think, is important to that, too, right? I mean, especially in light of immigration. Now, you know, Trump showing his true colors in places like Charlottesville. You know, we talked to Kelly Baker earlier in the season. You know, and then Hillary, you know, Hillary's just the worst possible candidate for for liberals in this environment because, A, she's got all that baggage from the 90s with evangelicals, and then, B, it's she's just another four to eight years of Obama. So... You know the fact that it's Hillary too. I think is a, is a is is explains a lot of this as well. But uh, Fitzgerald, I think, gets it. You know, as I, as I'm writing this book on Trump, uh, which hopefully will be out in the spring, uh, one of the things I think that I've learned from Fitzgerald's book is this kind of economic dimension to it too. If I'm I, I, what I want to what I want to sort of get at a little bit is that kind of Venn diagram question I asked her, you know, that all of these social and moral concerns are the same, but then there's these economic concerns and I love the way she put it. Most poor southerners who see these kind of economic promises that Trump's making to them are also evangelicals, right? So it's they they sort of come together on that front. The other thing I, I, she didn't get into and she didn't, what she does unpack in the book are, are these questions about gender and, and the feminist movement and so forth. Um, I just got in the mail the other day, Marie Griffith's new book called moral combat in which she argues that the entire culture wars is rooted on issues of sex and, and gender. And it's, it's, it's a very compelling argument. And I think that plays into the Trump phenomenon as well. Well, Drew, I think that's a wrap. Absolutely. Another great episode. And uh, happy holidays to everyone. Although I don't, who knows when you'll be listening mm-hmm. to this. Uh, Merry Christmas. Yeah. Well, if you're driving, driving to go visit family, this is a great, a great accompaniment to that, yep. to those long drives. Yeah. We'll see you in January. We have some great guests lined up, including another National Book Award finalist and a bunch of other surprises for you in the new year as we continue here with season number four. So uh, keep listening. Get over to the Patreon site. Support us, uh, and in the meantime, may your way of improvement always lead home. This has been a production of The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewayofimprovement.com. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcatcher of choice so others may more easily find this podcast. And let's continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. Follow us at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast. 
podcast was brought to you through the generous support of Gretchen Adams, Kate Logan, Lisa DeGuardi, and Ron Schooler. Also, many thanks to our sponsor, Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. The podcast was recorded at the High Center Studios of Messiah College. Thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guest, Francis Fitzgerald. Our studio producer is Josh Lowry. I've been your producer, Drew Durley Hermeling, and your host, as always, is John Fia. Merry Christmas! <laughs> Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.